my name is Ellie Lauterpacht, otherwise known as Sir Elihu Lauterpacht. Uh, I have spent my life in international law, partly in the academic field and partly in the professional field. I'm an English a barrister and QC. I've also taught at Cambridge, where I'm an honorary professor of international law, and for some years was the founder director of the Research Center for International Law there. Uh, I have practiced a great deal in international tribunals, the International Court of Justice, for example, and primarily, and uh, in a number of arbitral tribunals, as well as in the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea. I'm very glad to be able to participate in this series of lectures and to give this uh, talk, which is on the, the role of the international uh, judge. I may anticipate uh, the fact that some people will react adversely to the notion that I always speak of the judge or arbitrator as a he. I hope this gender discrimination will not be held against me, uh, but it is convenient. There, are, there have been, of course, and are very eminent uh, lady judges, uh, not least by any means, or I should say most prominent, is the current president of the International Court of Justice, uh, Judge Rosalind Higgins. Now, <clears throat> the subject of the role of the international judge is of increasing importance. Fifty years ago, uh, the scope for such a consideration would have been limited to the work of the International Court of Justice and also to the occasional bilateral arbitrations by special agreement between states. Nowadays, there are many additional tribunals. Uh, there's the <coughs> International Center for S the Settlement of Investment Disputes, which has uh, a, a large number of cases uh, on its docket and is assuming very great importance in the settlement of international investment disputes. There's also the dispute settlement system of the World Trade Organization. There's the functioning of the Court of Justice of the European Communities, which has a vast and very impressive uh, jurisprudence. In addition, there are the very many cases decided by the European Court of Human Rights and the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. Additionally, there, are, uh, there is, I should say, the work of the various international criminal courts. I'm not uh, so familiar with this last category of works. Uh, I don't suppose that there is a great deal of difference between some of the fundamental elements of the role of the international judge between the civil cases and the criminal cases, but I will limit myself to the, the civil cases. Uh, in addition uh, to these tribunals, I, I think I've omitted to mention the International Tribunal on the Law of the Sea, uh, there are the many bilateral arbitrations based on special agreements between states. For example, the Eritrea-Yemen dispute about title to islands and maritime areas in the Red Sea or the Southern Bluefin Tuna case between Australia and Japan. So uh, <coughs> we, we, have to, we have to observe that the function of the judge is now very widespread. And despite the multiplicity of jurisdictions, they all share a number of common features. And I will focus on these. 
The, the role of the, the judge or arbitrator is determined in part by three factors. One is the statute or other constitution establishing the tribunal in which he's sitting. Uh, this, in the case of the ICJ, is obviously the statute of the court. In the case of bilateral arbitrations, it is the compromis or submission to arbitration concluded by agreement between the parties. A, a second factor is the issues which are actually placed before the tribunal. That is to say, is the tribunal to determine <coughs> uh, issues of law or fact, as in a case on sovereignty, or is it rather unusually called upon not only to determine, let us say, in a boundary case, what the boundary is, but also to demarcate it, which is uh, largely a non-judicial function. Uh, this has happened in a number of cases uh, with, with varying success. And the, the third element, which is so important, is a general consideration of proper judicial behavior. Now, I'll develop these elements in, in what follows. It's convenient to distinguish between the substantive role and the procedural role of the, the judge. The substantive role is to <coughs> decide the case in accordance with the facts that he finds and the law as he determines it to be. And the procedural aspect is his role in dealing with the unfolding of the case, the, the managing of the uh, proceedings and the holding of the hearing. Now, as to the substantive role, the, the principal substantive function of the judge is first to find the facts, second to decide the legal issues in accordance with the relevant legal rules. Uh, in so doing, he will usually follow the approach of the statute of the International Court of Justice, which prescribes in Article 36 that the court shall apply international treaties, uh, international custom, and general principles of law. The judge will normally be influenced by precedents, but he is not bound by them. And this is increasing, th this fact of not being bound is increasingly necessary having regard to the multiplicity of international tribunals because in, invariably uh, one tribunal may differ from another in its approach to the, the same kind of issue. But at the same time, the outcome must not be full of surprises. I was going to say it should be predictable, but uh, this doesn't actually assist us very much since each side when it launches into uh, an arbitration or a case before a court uh, thinks that the outcome is predictable in its own favor, so that that sort of approach doesn't really help one. <coughs> However, uh, this does not prevent the tribunal developing the law. I, I'll take two old uh, examples. In the Norwegian fisheries case, the International Court uh, made important contributions to the law of the sea, particularly in relation to the delimitation of the territorial sea and the introduction of the straight baseline concept. Then in the Notterboom case, uh, a few years later, uh, it introduced the, the idea of the genuine link, which was widely adopted in the law of the sea and elsewhere. But what the judge may not do is to invent or create the law or deliberately to depart from the law. 
His function is to apply the law as he can find it to be. The only permissible exception is where he is expressly requested or authorized to develop or depart from the law. Uh, this aspect of the role of the international judge is often described as deciding a case ex aequo et bono, for which provision is made in the second paragraph of Article 36 of the Statute of the Court. But I must emphasize that this is something which can only be done on the basis of express request or authorization. <coughs> now, sometimes uh, a bilateral arbitration agreement will go so far as expressly to exclude any recourse to ex aequo et bono. This, isn't, this is not strictly necessary, but the fact that it is sometimes included in tribunals emphasizes the uh, limitations which are placed upon the discretion of the tribunal. There is, however, a difficult line to draw between a decision ex aequo et bono, which is a decision outside the law, and the application of equity within the law for which provision is made, for example, in the International uh, Convention for the Law of the Sea of 1982, uh, especially in the field of the delimitation of uh, adjacent and opposite respective shells. When the judge decides in this manner, it, that is to say on the basis of equitable principles, which he's permitted to do by the law, it is essential that the factors involved in the decision <coughs> should be clearly set out. The reasoning must be transparent. I emphasize the, the adjective transparent. For some reason, some judges in domestic courts uh, considering decisions of international bilateral arbitral tribunals have doubted whether a particular uh, convention permits the use or recourse of to the concept of transparency. But transparency is almost self-evidently a feature of a proper uh, judicial settlement. In some cases, of course, the inadequacy of reasoning may be a ground for the challenge. If the court doesn't cover the issues properly and doesn't make its position plain, then, for example, in the ICSID system, that could be a justification for recourse to a special committee, i.e. to an appeal body. But there are some cases in which a judge or arbitrator is actually asked by the parties to prescribe legal considerations or formulae to govern the situation. People often forget that in the case of the free zones of Jex and Upper Savoy, the parties turned uh, to initially the Permanent Court of International Justice, and when that body was unable to deal with the matter to a special group of three distinguished lawyers to lay down the legal regime for those zones. But that is only by request of the parties. A difficult question, uh, differently answered by different judges, is whether the <coughs> task is to the task of the judge is to decide the case simply along the narrowest possible lines, or to expand the decision 
into a broader pronouncement of law so as to provide authoritative guidance uh, for the future. Now, there's no universally valid answer to this question. It really depends on the person who is uh, giving, or, or the tribunal that is giving the decision, a question of personal background or legal formation. It's a, a matter also of the, the nature of the tribunal, whether it is uh, one that consists of many judges or only of one judge, <coughs> and the actual state of development of the law, and so on. Uh, there have been judges who have felt that it was their duty to set out the law comprehensively on the issues facing uh, the court. Uh, and certainly, uh, some of those pronouncements have been of the greatest value afterwards. But equally, there are judges who feel that a case should be decided only upon the, the narrowest possible lines, so as not to uh, create doubts or uh, establish precedents that it may not be possible for other tribunals uh, to follow. Now, I may at this point say that every judge or arbitrator is faced by the issue of national prejudice. Uh, the judges of the International Court are 15 judges of eminence and the highest moral standing who are <coughs> nationals of members of the United Nations. Uh, arbitrators uh, are selected from various states. And <coughs> the, the idea is that they should all uh, decide cases impartially and without being influenced by their national backgrounds. Now, one possible exception to this is the role of the ad hoc judge. In the International Court of Justice, if a party in a case does not have on the bench a judge of its own nationality, it is entitled to select an ad hoc judge to sit in the case, to sit in that case. Now, that ad hoc judge takes the same oath as the titular judges, as they're called, takes the same oath, that is to say, to approach the case fairly and impartially. But the question has been raised whether the fact that a judge, an ad hoc judge, has been nominated by a party, especially for that case, must necessarily lead him to favor the party that has appointed him. Uh, the subject, uh, although there have been many cases in which ad hoc judges have been appointed, the subject has had not really been as, uh, uh, critically approached until I myself was appointed an ad hoc judge in the case between uh, Bosnia and Yugoslavia back in 1992 or 1993, uh, where I, I was an ad hoc judge, and I was greatly troubled by this issue. And so I, I did discuss it in my separate opinion and observed that the duty of the ad hoc judge is, of course, to approach the case impartially and without favoring the state that appointed him. At the same time, I suggested that it was the duty of the ad hoc judge to ensure that every consideration advanced by the party that appointed him was reviewed and properly assessed by the court, even though the court might decide not to adopt that point of view. I'm glad to say that a number of subsequent ad hoc judges have shared that opinion, and um, notably uh, Judge Frank in the 
case where he was ad hoc judge appointed by Indonesia in the case between Malaysia and Indonesia regarding the islands of Sipidan and Ligatan. Well, now, I'm going to pass from the, this examination of the substantive role of the, the judge <coughs> to uh, the, the procedural role. This is just as important as the discharge of the substantive role. The, the procedural role comprises the following amongst other elements. Firstly, managing the case. That is to say, ensuring that it moves forward smoothly. Ensuring that so far as possible, the smooth flow of the proceedings is not held up by prevarication by one of the parties. Uh, fixing practical time limits for written pleadings and oral hearings. Uh, uh, these are elements in the management of the case. In addition, it has to be borne in mind that a guiding principle in what the judge does is the maxim audi alterem partim. That is to say, the obligation to hear both sides. There should be no discrimination in the treatment of the parties. Each side must be given an equal opportunity to be heard on each issue. And if one side approaches the tribunal ex parte, then the tribunal must make sure that the other side is made aware of that approach, and if it is appropriate, given an opportunity to comment on it. Furthermore, the task, the procedural ta duties of the, the judge uh, is to ensure that evidence is properly managed. Now, in most cases, the evidence is put forward in documentary form as annexes to the written pleadings. There are, however, some cases in which uh, one or the other party wishes to tender oral evidence. The judge must then hear that evidence and must control the way in which it is presented and permit cross-examination and re-examination if necessary. And this is a task that is actually uh, unknown to, to many of the people who do sit as international judges and who, though they may have distinguished international law backgrounds, may not have had practical exposure uh, to the law. So uh, they, they hear these, uh, they hear the counsel in the cases examining the parties without always appreciating the implications of what is going on before them. There is, of course, a problem when you come to technical matters uh, of a kind that are, are not normally within the uh, knowledge of the tribunal or indeed of the parties. And then it is essential that there be expert evidence. Uh, <coughs> now, this expert evidence can be provided either directly to the court by its own selection of experts or through the parties by the presentation of expert witnesses. But when the court or arbitrator decides to choose an expert to assist it, it should do so with the knowledge uh, and concurrence of the parties. It should not be a covert operation by the court. It should be open and open to comment uh, by the parties. Another problem that arises in the procedural uh, operation of the, the judge is whether he should ask or whether he may ask questions of the parties during the hearings. In my view, he definitely should be allowed to do so. 
Of course, the extent to which he may do so depends largely upon the tribunal in which he's sitting. If he is <coughs> sitting as a sole arbitrator, it's much easier for him to engage in dialogue with the uh, counsel of the parties, and that can be very constructive. If, on the other hand, he's sitting as <coughs> a member of uh, a larger tribunal, particularly the International Court of Justice, then <coughs> proceedings can become a little bit confused if judges uh, ask questions, so to speak, out of turn or without previous consultation with their colleagues. And this, in its, an, an awareness of this difficulty may inhibit judges from asking questions which should be asked. The, one of the important functions of oral proceedings should be to enable judges to seek clarification of points that have been raised in the written or oral pleadings. Uh, not enough use is uh, made of this facility partly from the fear that a judge may have that if he asks a question of one of the parties, this may be taken as a premature indication of the direction in which he is leaning. Well, uh, that, that criticism should not be made of a judge. A judge may ask a question uh, w without it necessarily being such an indication. So I personally would greatly favor uh, more involvement of judges in discourse with the parties during hearings. This leads to a, a, another um, difficult question, whether a judge should decide a case by reference to considerations that have not been argued. Uh, can, can the judge, so to speak, take the parties by surprise and say, well, although you've never thought of this point, I have. And in my view, if properly applied, uh, you should not be able to be, go on with the case or you should have the case decided against you. I think that there is some danger in accepting that that is uh, fully permissible. It can be permissible in some cases, and there have been some very important cases in which judges have taken such an initiative. But on the whole, it is desirable that the judges should not take the parties by, by surprise, but should <coughs> uh, raise with them during the oral hearings uh, the, the, the question which is troubling him and seek their views. There remains uh, at least one important point that should not be bypassed. To what extent may the judge or arbitrator assist the parties to reach an agreed settlement of the dispute? Well, the answer to this is that unless the parties request such assistance, the judge or arbitrator must, strict, must stick to the law. But the issue may be one in which a suggestion by the judge or arbitrator might help the parties to overcome the differences between them. For example, in, in a boundary case by suggesting that instead of the parties being excessively concerned by the line which the tribunal is strictly bound to determine, they should accept the notion of an open border in that particular location so that there can be free passage uh, across the border uh, by the, the nationals of each state. But uh, whether the judge or arbitrator may take such an initiative really depends on how the whole case has progressed. As I say, I emphasize, basically, the judge can only decide 
according to law. He must be careful in such a situation not to make a suggestion which in any way could be understood as undermining his decision on the strict law or weakening the binding quality of the formal legal decision. I have been asked whether there's a difference between <coughs> a, a, a judge and an arbitrator, between judicial settlements, e.g. by the International Court and arbitral determinations by tribunals uh, set up by agreement between the parties. And the answer is no. Both the court and the arbitrator are bound to apply the law strictly. Uh, there used to be a view, I don't think now so widely held, that somehow or other in an arbitration there was more room for adjustment by the arbitrator of the positions of the parties. Uh, this is not satisfactory. Uh, he, the arbitrator should be in exactly the same position as the judge and should decide the case according to law. There are <coughs> many other points which could be covered in a lecture like this on the role of the international judge, and I can't possibly cover them all now. <coughs> so I'll just offer a, a, a brief summary of, of what I think, uh, what, what I believe to be the principal elements in the role of the international judge. The first is to decide the case in accordance with the existing substantive law. The second is, unless requested, he should not decide the case by reference to non-legal considerations. The third is that he should produce a properly reasoned decision. Fourthly, <coughs> the judge must maintain a position of complete impartiality between the two sides. <coughs> he must pl place behind him any uh, national considerations or prejudices or biases. He must be absolutely impartial. Fifthly, he must manage the case efficiently. <coughs> he is not to be responsible by any act or omission for unnecessary prolongation of the case. Sixthly, he should ensure that each party is given a fair and equal opportunity to be heard. And if he does not, then the validity of his conclusions uh, must be open to question. And seventh, and lastly for present purposes, he should be patient and courteous and enliven the proceedings, if he can, with a restrained sense of humor. Thank you very much.